please join me in prayer. Paul wrote, where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Father, thank you for bringing your people together today. Thank you for this day that we can celebrate your resurrection from the grave. A powerfully, eternally significant, life-redeeming, life-giving act. You are no longer dead. Christ has risen. And so this morning we celebrate, we thank you for the hope that we have in our hearts that those who trust in you are freed from the power of sin to live in the joy of new life, living in relationship with you. Father, though we are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe, the gospel tells us that at the same time, We are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. Help us this morning to hear and respond to your gospel with a true faith expressed in humble confidence in the one who died for our sin and rose again. We want to pray this morning for other churches in our city, other churches that are gospel-loving, gospel-preaching, gospel-proclaiming congregations across this area, men that we meet with and, and respect who are declaring your word this morning. Would you please rest upon Remnant Church and Commonwealth Chapel, West End Baptist and Grace Church, Emmanuel Baptist and Grace Bible Church, would you please meet Powhatan Baptist and Calvary Chapel and Evergreen Community Church, Emmaus Christian Church, Redemption Hill, Freedom Fellowship Church. Lord, we thank you for these other congregations and and many others across the city who are faithfully proclaiming your gospel who are living in the light of your word and honoring the Savior. And we pray that your blessing would pour out upon each of these congregations. And we give you thanks. And Lord, we also pray for Tammy Bishop, who this morning is serving Andy and Andrea Baker and at Word Made Flesh, Sudasana Ministry in Bolivia. We pray that you would protect her that you would empower her to fulfill the the work that you've called her there to do and that you would bring her home safely from serving this ministry with the gospel. And now would you be with us today? Help us as we open your word to hear the voice of God. You speak to us through preaching by your word. Would you do that now by your Holy Spirit, and we 
We give you thanks that it's your pleasure to do that. We trust you and we rejoice in you. In Christ's name, amen. Amen. Well, for those of you that I haven't had the opportunity to meet in person, my name is Gene Emerson. I serve as one of the pastors here at Kingsway. And, well, this is a, a very special Sunday. My, my heart is particularly full of joy today. Because 40 years ago, I recognized my sin, recognized my need for a Savior, and recognized that Jesus Christ died in my place. Forty years ago, I was born again, and God has been so merciful to me over these four decades. And I am here just with deep gratitude to Him. This Easter Sunday has great meaning for me. It's also the, the 26th anniversary, 26 years ago at, on Easter Sunday, Kingsway had our first meeting in Chesterfield Town Center in what was in the new theater complex. And in these 26 years, we have experienced God's kindness and his mercy in so many ways. He's been faithful to, to see families restored and see marriages reunited and see people experiencing new life in Christ, seeing our children growing up and serving the Lord. He's been kind to us. And then 21 years ago today, my wife Liz informed me at the beginning of the sermon that she was, her water broke and she would see me at the hospital. (laughs) That was an interesting day and And on that day, 21 years ago, we received an Easter baby. Somebody told us her her birthday will always be on Easter. It hasn't worked out that way, but we thank God for her. And so we welcome you. If you're here as our guest, it's especially meaningful that you would join us on this Easter Sunday. We, we hope that you encounter the Savior during your time here. We, we gather here as a church family each week, and, and you're, we're inviting you and welcoming you into our home and hope that you will come back again and again and experience the Savior's love in this place. Thank you so much for being here. Let me release the children to go ahead and make their way out, the 5 to 11-year-olds, You can slip out for your time of ministry. And if you have a Bible, if you would open it, please, to Mark chapter 7. Mark is the second gospel, the second book of the New Testament. It's about two-thirds of your way through the Bible. We are continuing this morning our study of the gospel of Mark. As you're looking that up, Let me ask this question. What kind of people are pleasing to you? Think about that. What kind of people do you enjoy being around? For many of us, it might be people like us, people that we feel comfortable with, people that dress a certain way or talk a certain way or act a certain way. Maybe people that are funny, people that make you laugh. What, what is it about people that makes them pleasing to you? As I look out this morning, there are many of you are 
pleasing to be with. What, what is that? And maybe as a second question, a more important question, what is it that makes us pleasing to God? What kind of people are pleasing to God? Think about that. Well, we don't have to conjecture. We actually have in the scriptures Psalm 15 written by David. David asked this question, Lord, who may dwell in your sanctuary? Who may live on your holy hill? And then he answered, he whose walk is blameless and does what is righteous. Think about that. Holy people are pleasing to God. Most of us realize instinctively That when we come to God, when we approach God, that He is holy and we are not. And therein lies the problem of religion. How do we as a sinful people approach a holy God? What do we do to make ourselves pleasing to Him? Well, religion has many answers to that. The Jewish religion offered sacrifices in the tabernacle and then the temple. Maybe we would try to live a good life, keep the rules. Maybe do something to offer to God, give Him some money. Or maybe just being here this morning for you is part of being acceptable to God. We can do religious things. The the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders in Jesus' day, used to wash their hands so that they could wash the uncleanness off of their hands and be acceptable to God. But Jesus, in the passage just before the one we're going to read this morning, said to them, it's not your hands that need cleaning, it's your whole being, it's your heart. And here's the problem. You cannot clean yourself. So if I can't clean myself, how can I approach a holy God? How can I please a holy God? What are you placing your confidence in this morning in approaching God? Well, Mark tells us an amazing story. It really is one of the most incredible stories in the Bible about a desperate woman who pleased God. A desperate mom who was commended by Jesus for the way she approached him. And because of that, listen up, every one of us can learn from her example. Wherever you are, whatever age, whatever background... We can learn from her example. You can learn from her example. So look with me. Mark chapter 7. We're going to begin reading in verse 24. From there he arose and went away to the region of Tyre and Sidon. And he entered a house and did not want anyone to know. Yet he could not be hidden. But immediately a woman whose little daughter had an unclean spirit heard of him and came and fell down at his feet. 
Now the woman was a Gentile, a Syrophoenician by birth. And she begged him. She begged him to cast the demon out of her daughter. And he said to her, Let the children be fed first. For it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. But she answered him, Yes, Lord. Yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. And he said to her, For this statement you may go your way. The demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. In this passage, Jesus takes a most unexpected journey. This is the only time that the Gospels record that Jesus left Palestine. That he traveled outside of Galilee and Palestine. He traveled 40 miles northeast to a Mediterranean seaport city called Tyre, which is something of the capital of Gentile paganism. It's like the, the Las Vegas of the first century. And he went here to get away with his disciples, to get away from his enemies to have some R&R and time to instruct his disciples. His desire was to remain anonymous. But this passage says he could not conceal his presence. His fame went before him. His works and his miracles were known. And word quickly got out that Jesus was in town. And when it did, a most unlikely individual showed up asking for his help. A woman oppressed with a very deep sorrow. Now, here's the tension we need to feel as we read these verses. This woman had many obstacles that should have kept her from coming to Jesus. She was the least qualified. She was the most disqualified person in the Gospel of Mark to come with her plea. First of all, she was a Gentile. Her nationality was against her. Gentiles didn't approach Jews. And not only was she a Gentile, but even worse, she was a Syrophoenician, which meant she was a part of an ethnic group that identified with Rome and its many gods. Strike one. This woman didn't belong talking to Jesus. Not only was she a Gentile, but she, her gender was against her. She was a woman in a society dominated by men. Strike two. And Satan was against her. One of the demons had taken control of her daughter's life. Strike three. If that isn't enough... Jesus' disciples were against her. They wanted Jesus to send her away so they could have some rest. Strike four. And it appeared, at least initially, that even Jesus was against her. So the question we have to ask is, why would this woman be so bold? 
why wouldn't she let anybody stop her? Why wouldn't she see how disqualified she was and stay away? And the very simple answer is, she's a mom. She's a mom, that's why. One man said it this way, in the world there are cowards, there are regular people, there are heroes, and there are moms. If your child is in jeopardy, moms, you will do whatever it takes. doesn't matter what your personality is, if you're naturally timid or brazen. When it comes to the well-being of your child, you are willing to push back by, by all barriers to get what you need for your child. And her daughter was demonized. And we don't have a description of her daughter, but we have a description in Mark chapter 9 of a demonized boy that gives us some indication of what she must have faced. The picture in Mark 9 is of of a boy seized by an evil spirit, which takes him and throws him to the ground where he convulses and foams at the mouth. It often casts him into the fire and into the water to destroy him. Because demons hate human beings because men and women are created in God's image. Demons seek to destroy people. And demons were effectively destroying this boy and undoubtedly this girl. So put yourself in her shoes. You're a mom with a little girl who's demonized who's being destroyed by demons. And you've gone to your religious leaders and they can do nothing to help you because Satan is not threatened by idolaters. No doubt she had heard something of the Gadarene demoniac. How Jesus had come and, and, and addressed this man who for many years had run around naked in the tombs, who had frightened people and violently attacked people, and Jesus delivered him. And this reputation had gone before him. And so now she hears that Jesus, surprise of all surprises, is in town. He's in the house down there. And the word's out that he's not doing any meetings He's here for a retreat. He's here to be with his disciples. He's not interested in praying for people. Is that going to stop her? Is that going to keep her from going to meet the Savior? No way in the world. So she boldly enters the house without an invitation, and falls down at his feet, revealing her humility, her reverence, and her submissiveness. And she begins to beg. The tense of the verb there is she begs again and again and again. The parallel section in the Gospel of Mark gives us her words. She says, Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. My daughter is suffering terribly from demon possession. Lord, Son of David, have mercy on me. Crying out again and again and again. Pleading with Jesus to rid her dear child of this demon. She won't be denied. 
Now, you've got to feel the tension here. See, Jesus is in an unclean Gentile area. That means that, that, that he's in a, an area that's not Jewish. It's considered religiously unclean. An unclean Gentile area, an unclean Gentile home, accompanied by an unclean Gentile woman whose daughter has an unclean spirit. Feel the tension. The parallel section in Matthew tells us that his disciples responded by begging him to send her away because she's interrupting their time. They don't want to have to deal with this. But she continues to beg. Now think about it. What's Jesus going to do? This is one of the most interesting scenarios in the Gospels. The tension is palatable. There's a desperate mother pleading who won't take no for an answer. How is Jesus to respond? Well, his response is one of the most shocking and controversial statements he ever made. He tells her a parable and he calls her a dog. Look at verse 27. He said to her, Let the children be fed first, for it is not right to take the children's bread and throw it to the dogs. One of the surprises I had in visiting Bolivia last summer was seeing these wild, unclean dogs roaming both cities and countryside. They're just everywhere you looked, there were, there were dogs, but nobody was paying attention to them. They certainly weren't anyone's pet. They were simply scavengers trying to find something to eat. And that's the kind of setting we find ourselves in the New Testament in the first century. Dogs generally weren't considered beloved household pets. In fact, Gentiles, Jews called Gentiles dogs as a derogatory term because they were spiritually unclean. So when Jesus calls her a dog, it appears to be rude and insulting. Maybe you are offended that Jesus would say something like that. But it, it was, in fact, is a statement in, intended as an invitation and a provocation to test the genuineness of her faith. Jesus uses an unusual word for dogs. It's the word that means puppies or little dogs. And, and he says to her, essentially, you know how families eat. First, the children eat at the table then their puppies, their little dogs eat, in that order. Little dogs must not eat before children. That word first is the critical word. Jesus is testing her faith. He's saying there's an order here. I'm going to Israel first, then to the Gentiles later. His first priority in being there was to instruct his disciples, his covenant people. The time for blessing the Gentiles had not yet come. And she needs to know this to understand that if her wish were to be granted, it would be by way of exception and a very great 
privilege. Jesus' words were shocking. Her response was even more shocking. She gets the parable. She understands the point of the parable. Her God-given faith was strong enough to realize that Jesus wasn't turning her away. His reluctance to help stimulated her faith. And so she responds with a parable of her own. Jesus had said, little dogs must not eat before children. And now look at verse 28. She answered him, yes, Lord, yet even the dogs under the table eat the children's crumbs. Is that interesting? She gets it. She responds with her own parable. She, she teaches us in her response how to approach God. What we're going to learn by what, looking at her response is what kind of people are pleasing to God. We're going to unpack that. We're going to see this, that what makes a person pleasing to God is true faith. True faith that's evidenced or expressed in a humble confidence. First of all, we see that true faith is humble. True faith is humble. True faith recognizes our unworthiness. This woman didn't take offense. She didn't stand on her rights. Now, that would be our temptation, our tendency in Western culture, wouldn't it? If somebody says, if you ask somebody for something and they call you a dog, you're probably going to be offended. You're probably going to demand your rights. You're going to say, what a racist thing that is to say. How unkind. How ridiculous that is. You don't know. I'm, I'm a person. I have dignity. You can't call me a dog. But she didn't do that. She didn't get offended. In fact, she agreed with him. She said, I understand. I, I'm not from Israel. I don't worship the God of the Israelites. So I don't have a place at the table. I accept that. I, I don't deserve a place at the table. I have no merit. I have no standing. I have everything to disqualify me and nothing to commend me. See, here's the problem. In our culture, and maybe in our hearts, we believe that God owes us something. We start out with the conviction that we've been faithful for X number of years, five years, ten years, fifteen, thirty. Been faithful, been serving the Lord, been giving, been going to church, praying, doing my devotion times. God, you owe me something. I've been praying and fasting. I've, I've come to you having worked my way through life. So when I pray, I can pray like this. Give me what I deserve on the basis of my merits. The problem with that is that if we really believe that, we don't need a Savior. If we really believe that, we're our own Savior. But the Bible paints a very different picture of our state. Paul writes to the Romans, there is no one righteous 
Not even one. All have turned away. There is no one who does good in case we think we're the exception. Not even one. All have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. He adds in his letter to the Ephesians, it is by grace you've been saved through faith and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God that what? That no one can boast. If we come to God based upon our own merit, we have reason to boast. I mean, he saved me because I'm, I'm pretty good. He answers my prayers because, daggone it, I've earned it. I deserve it. That's not her posture. She comes with humble faith, with confident humility. She recognizes her unworthiness. And the second thing we see is that true faith is not only humble, but true faith is confident. True faith is confident. It affirms his generosity. Now pay attention to this because it's exciting. She doesn't insult God by being too discouraged to take up the offer. She doesn't say, yeah, I guess you're right. I don't have a place at the table. Forgive me for interrupting you. I'll leave. If she had done that, she would have had no answer. But she doesn't do that. She doesn't get up and leave. She acknowledges her unworthiness. She acknowledges she doesn't deserve an answer. She acknowledges her need, but she affirms his generosity. She seizes on the word first. Remember in verse 27, let the children be fed first. The children referring to God's covenant people. Let them be fed first. The children sitting at the table will be fed first. She acknowledges that, but she says, Jesus, you said first. Martin Luther says she catches Christ with his own words. She doesn't withdraw, but she seizes on the word first to see an opportunity. Lord, I understand that you said the children first, but you said children first, not children only. First implies there is a second or even a last. Faith perceives that his mission extends beyond the Jews to the Gentiles. After the children have eaten, a surplus will be available. Faith understands that God is generous and always has a surplus. Remember in Mark chapter 6, Jesus fed 5,000 men plus women and children. Some fifteen to 20,000 people were fed on five loaves of bread and three small fish. And after the fish and the bread were multiplied, each disciple was given a basket and each disciple went around gathering what was left so that nothing would be wasted. And 12 baskets full of excess were gathered. There is always an abundance with God. And so she comes on the basis of his generosity that crumbs will fall from the table for someone like her. In other words, she gets it. Consider this. This remarkable woman is the first person in Mark's gospel to hear and understand a parable of Jesus. She's the first. 
the first to hear the word of Jesus to her. She gets it. Just, just by way of review, here's what she gets. Humble confidence is recognizing her unworthiness while affirming his generosity. She gets it. And so she, re- she wrestles with Jesus in a respectful way. Like a female Jacob. I'm not going to let you go until you bless me. Her rightless assertiveness is compelling. Here's what she says. Give me what I don't deserve on the basis of your goodness. And the scriptures record that Jesus was delighted by this woman. Oh, this, this, this is a picture that brings joy to Jesus. Remember, we, we asked the question, what, what kind of people does God enjoy? What kind of people bring joy to him? Well, this woman, this woman is an example. And the answer is, this kind of, the kind of person that's pleasing to God is a person of true faith who expresses that true faith by humble confidence. True faith is sometimes found where we may least expect it. Jesus, no doubt, had great joy in this woman in part because his experience to date has been dealing with the Pharisees and scribes who were just contentious and, and, and blind and who were seek, simply out to seek to destroy him. And then on the other hand, his disciples who weren't the sharpest tacks in the box, if you know what I mean. They, they just didn't get it. But this woman gets it. And this woman's a Gentile. In fact... Jesus says to this woman in the parallel section in Matthew's gospel, O woman, listen to this, O woman, great is your faith. Be it done to you as you desire. Can you feel the joy of the Savior? O woman, Great is your faith. How precious to the Lord. She's one of only two people in all the Gospels that Jesus commended for great faith. The other is the Roman centurion in Matthew chapter 8. Both of them Gentiles. And this woman clearly delighted the Lord. Kent Hughes writes, there was a sparkle in his eye and a smile on his face. She delighted the Lord. She pleased him. Charles Spurgeon says, Jesus held this woman's faith up so that the church down through the ages could see how beautiful her faith was. Throughout the ages, the church has looked at this Gentile woman as an example of beautiful faith. Great faith that takes God at His word. That will not let God go until He meets the need. And so Jesus responds to her in verse 29, For this statement you may go your way. 
the demon has left your daughter. And she went home and found the child lying in bed and the demon gone. She triumphed because of her great faith. Jesus says, go home, the demon's gone. As a parent, I'm so grateful for her example. I'm so grateful for the example of a woman who understands that there is only one way to ultimately meet my child's greatest need. I want you to think about this. Whether your children are infants or toddlers, whether they're teenagers or grown adults, your child's greatest needs will not be met through your discipline or your instruction or your rules or even your example, though all those things are important. Your child's greatest need can only be met by God. No matter what you do on the outside and As parents, we are commanded to instruct, to discipline, to teach, to model. No matter how effective we are, our child's greatest need is in the heart. You cannot accomplish that through washing their hands. Only God can wash their hearts. Only God can give them a new heart. And so we can be the greatest parents in the world, but if God does not work in their lives, their hearts will be stoned. And so our greatest need as parents, no matter how old our children, is to pray. This woman demonstrates for us the most effective form of parenting. Praying to the only one who can meet their greatest need. Parents, be encouraged by her example. Be faithful to teach. Be faithful to discipline. Be faithful to admonish. Be faithful to set appropriate boundaries. But at the end of the day, place your confidence in prayer. Place your confidence in the only one who can change their hearts. And while we speak about our need for prayer, brothers and sisters, Let us place our confidence for all of life in him. Let us follow her example of humble confidence. In in many years of pastoring, this is my experience, that, that oftentimes we are more familiar with the humble unworthiness part than we are with the humble confidence part. We're often more aware of our unworthiness than his generosity. More aware of our sin than his forgiveness. And both are necessary. Both a confident humility that comes from understanding our need and a humble confidence that comes from embracing and affirming his generosity. Both are necessary. It does not please God if we simply acknowledge our unworthiness. He is merciful. He is generous. He has come to generously redeem and ransom sinners. 
He invites us to boldly approach grace. And we insult him and grieve him if we withdraw and keep our distance. Gospel-believing faith, hear this, gospel-believing faith means we recognize our unworthiness while affirming his generosity. Both are necessary. John Newton, who was a slave trader, who was redeemed by God, said the following, I am a great sinner, but I have a great Savior. There is more grace in his heart than sin in mine. Brothers and sisters, do we believe that? There is more grace in his heart than sin in mine. I need to lay hold of that or I will distance myself from him as a result of my unworthiness. And that may seem humble, but that does not reflect faith. The writer to Hebrews said it this way, true faith, while true faith is impo- without true faith, it is impossible to please God. Because anyone who comes to him must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. So I want to ask you this morning, do you believe that he exists and that he rewards? Do you believe that? Do you believe that he's come because he exists, because he's resurrected, that he rewards? Do you believe that he rewards you? Sinclair Ferguson asked this question. How many of us will get to the throne on the final day and with a twinge of regret say, if only I had known you were this gracious. If only I'd known you were this gracious. Brothers and sisters, let us trust in his generosity now so that we won't have regrets. She, this woman, won't have regrets. She won't. Will you? Will you have regrets on that final day that you didn't believe he was as gracious as he is? The question that we started with is the one she answers for us. How can we live pleasing to God? How can we live a life pleasing to God? And her example of faith, true faith, expressed in humble confidence is compelling. It's even more compelling when we realize that she was convinced of his kindness and generosity before his crucifixion and resurrection. She didn't have the ultimate revelation of God's love and power that we have. He who did not spare his own son but gave him up for us all, how will he not give us all things? She didn't have that. She believed. Like this woman, you may not have had all the advantages of being raised in the household of faith. 
or perhaps you have. But like her, the word has come to you that Christ can meet your needs. He can heal your heart. I don't know how he will answer your prayers when you approach him. But I do know that he will care for you and be generous to you. He won't treat you as your sins deserve when you approach him. This woman left confident in Jesus' deliverance of her daughter because he looked her in the eye and he spoke to her. Your daughter's been delivered. He's doing the same thing today, but through something far more tangible. The resurrection of Christ is a loud statement that you can believe the word of God that has been spoken to you. Just as she trusted in his word, he has spoken a word of invitation to you through his death, burial, and resurrection. Tim Keller summarizes it this way. The gospel is this. We are more sinful and flawed in ourselves than we ever dared believe. Yet, at the very same time, we are more loved and accepted in Jesus Christ than we ever dared hope. That, my friends, is the good news of the gospel. That is the gospel of new life that we celebrate this Easter. True faith is expressed in humble confidence. We can live a life pleasing to God by having a humility, having a confident humility, by coming humbly to Him as this woman did. Not based upon who we are, but based upon who He is. And by having a humble confidence to believe as this woman did, to trust in Him, And to receive. How can we live pleasing to God? We can live in humble confidence. So that on that final day. There will be no regrets. Let's pray together. Father, I want to thank you. For the example of this humble woman. This woman who came to you recognizing and not arguing with humility about her sin. Knowing knowing that you are faithful. Recognizing her unworthiness. And that she came with humble confidence, anticipating and affirming your generosity and believing that you would give good things to those who trust in you. Father, this morning we want to be people that not only believe you are, but to believe that you are a rewarder of those who seek you. I pray for any person today 
who has not turned from their sin and trusted in the Savior, that even this morning you would open those hearts and do what only you can do. Turn our hearts of stone into a heart of flesh. For those of us who have followed you, some for many years, oh God, help us to live in such a way that we live in the good of your generosity. Not only recognizing that we are unworthy, but recognizing and affirming that you are generous and receiving from you all the blessings that you intend so that we as your people can delight and be filled with joy every day. We give you thanks for the example of this woman who learned how to live a life pleasing to you. And we pray, O oh God, that you would help us to so live our lives that our lives would likewise be pleasing to you. In the glorious name of Jesus Christ, we pray.